Hello, my name's Justin DeClue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to The Important Cinema Club, Shocktober! Hello! I'm a killer shrew. Our new favorite uh, scary animal, right, Will? Oh man, the killer! I, I'm more of a giant Gila monster guy. <laughs> so this week we're talking about Hellraiser. Every Shocktober we do a franchise, and and we're running out. <laughs> Listen, as I said, we still have Leprechaun, we still have Phantasm, Wishmasters there, Child's Play, Child's Play. Oh man, that we got the next ten Shocktobers for sure. Hellraiser and there will be ten Shocktobers, <laughs> and Hellraiser is one that we didn't jump to, even though that I have become a bit of a Hellraiser fan and i was surprised to hear that will had never seen one of them i am surprised too i'm not sure why that is i too think scary well actually i think so mm-hmm. i think it comes down to i look at pinhead and i don't like the guy <laughs> i don't i don't like the pins coming out of his head mm. there's something about that that freaks me out and he was all over the marketing of this film too so as a kid there was no way to escape this gruesome sight yeah i just i just didn't like the look at of him when i was a kid he he bothered me even more than freddy krueger he probably bothered me just just on some fundamental level i think it's because a pin is something that or like a nail is something that you can relate to you know what that feels like a burn guy yeah you don't know what that feels like so it's still rubbery and plastic in some way also pin had always seemed a little grumpy you mm. he was always frowning freddie he's having fun he's saying puns well i'm gonna say right from the get-go here one of the reasons i love my man pinhead is i think he's one of the lamest slasher villains around he's mm. terrible at his job in his first <laughs> appearance he says, no one escapes us. And then Ashley, the protagonist of the first two films, is like, what about my Uncle Frank? And he's like, oh, well, supposing he did escape us. <laughs> <laughs> he sucks. That's why I love him. And, you know, the famous story goes, he wasn't actually supposed to be the kind of like Freddy Krueger of the franchise. It was actually supposed to be another villainous person in the first one. Butterball? No, yeah, I would love it if it was Butterball. <laughs> no, it wasn't a Cenobite. It was supposed to be the Julia character, but the actor in that role would have none of that. So they decided, oh, well, people love Pinhead. That's what we ended up putting on the poster. That's who's going to be kind of the face of what ended up turning into a very lengthy franchise. So what's your experience? What's your history with the Hellraiser saga? I think that it's a movie that I was scared of when I was a kid. When I go to the video store, there would always be like Pinhead standees all over the place. He appeared on the cover of Marvel Comics. He had his own series, which is very odd to me. And he was never like a favorite. It didn't have that kind of visceral Jason-like feel. But I remember picking up the Anchor Bay DVDs way back in the day and enjoying them. But I almost found them too gross where I'm like, yeah. This is a little bit even too much for me at the yeah, time. Yeah, there was something a little bit, um, um, I don't know, I'm not sure what word I'm looking for, a little bit extreme about them. I didn't, as a kid, quite know where to classify these movies, because I understood what the Friday the 13th and what the Nightmare on Elm Street movies were. Those, those are like... Slashers. <laughs> yeah, those are, the, those are the franchises. And then on the other end of the spectrum, not the other end of the spectrum, somewhere else on the spectrum, you've got Evil Dead mm-hmm. and really culty stuff like that, stuff that's kind of goofy and weird and fun. And I didn't quite know where these things this seemed to occupy some other realm and there's hell in the title that already promises some adult like thrills right there too adult for me and i was a big horror fan when i was a kid i love reading stephen king and even clive barker stories and books like they're very extreme if anybody has checked out the thing that made clive barker's name two volumes 
of the books of blood like those are amazing short stories that continue to be adapted to this day but they're gory and they're gross and they're in your face in a way that like Stephen King novels weren't and it's weird to say that like they felt more adult when I was a kid but that's how I interpreted this kind of like splatter punkiness you know what I realize I just realized right now that probably the longest exposure the most thought I had ever given to Hellraiser before this week was having read Roger Ebert's negative reviews of the first two movies do you think that just tainted like your opinion of it and that's why you were like I don't need to check this out because Roger Ebert gave it a bad review yeah I think so which is like obviously a thing to be ashamed of well we've talked about this before that you know even some of the like very popular cult films if you read a bad review in a book when you can see these films like you have to make a decision reading that going okay I will put this out of my mind based on this information Exactly. Like Hellraiser 2 was in the I hated, hated, hated this movie's book. You know, it was in that book alongside Caligula and lots of other stuff and, you know, North and stuff like that. And you kind of put it in your head of like, okay, this is schlock. I get it. But didn't you go, wait, it's beside Caligula. Obviously, there's something more there. See, that's me now in my galaxy brain <laughs> phase. Uh, so I, Clive Barker, that's a name that I realized this week has just been nothing but a disembodied signifier to me. Like, because if you haven't seen Hellraiser, you definitely haven't read any of these books. Well, you probably saw Nightbreed, right? Uh, no. Wow. I, no. So, Lord of Illusion. No. Rawhead Rex. Abs- I'm I'm so ashamed. <laughs> I, I shouldn't even be doing a Shocktober episode. That's how ashamed I am. Like, We're all here to learn, Will. We're all here to exa- learn. Like, what's Clive Barker's deal? How would you uh, describe? It? Like I said, it is like a splatter punky. There's some David Cronenbergian um, kind of under pinnings to his stuff but there's also like mythology is really his deal he's a visual artist as well and it's kind of imbued in the stories that he tells like for example oh i don't remember what it's called but there's one about like someone goes to a village where all the townspeople had formed like a giant person mm-hmm. <laughs> that crushed people like these kind of surrealistic ideas that are often even disconnected from the everyday so they're scary in a way that like stephen king stuff isn't because he's very like grounded in the everyday while Clive Barker you know and it's also a very UK perspective Mm. so it has that kind of folk horror stuff to it a lot like these oh this has existed for a long time and continues to exist even if you're seeing it in the modern day would you call him Lovecraftian Uh, definitely you would probably call his early stuff Lovecraftian as well because that is imbued in all of this. I mean, even Hellraiser has the ideas of like the Leviathan, something that is so scary and unimaginable. That is definitely a Lovecraftian idea. So anyway, I watched the first three Hellraiser movies this week. Uh, loved them. I, I love the first two. The third one's okay. Uh, I haven't seen part four, Blood Bloodline, directed by Alan Smith. Yet. Well, I told you to watch Hellraiser Revelations. I know, I'm sorry. But I realized that when I sat down to watch it, I'm like, I didn't actually give him the name of the movie or remind him. Because if you had watched the newest one, it's one called Hellraiser Judgment, which is not the one I wanted you to watch. Okay. The thing about the Hellraiser movies is that past part four, they were essentially all contractual movies made by Dimension Films. They were all scripts that did not feature Pinhead and at the end he shows up and he's like hey it's me Pinhead chains come out rip somebody apart two of them have the exact same twist which is you've been dead the entire time just embarrassing all shot in Romania and uh yeah he probably comes in and he's like I'll get you my pretty and your little soul too (laughs) exactly bitch (laughs) they're not good and the only reason I'm right that he basically becomes Freddy right uh no because he kind of disappears he only shows up at the end of the movie. because I think in part three he's kind of a Freddy 
bratty. Yeah, love it. Yeah. <laughs> just walking around, talking the entire time. I mean, my history with Hellraiser is that me and my friend, it was during, we just, we're going to watch all the Hellraiser movies. We'll watch the first one. And then we took a dice and we rolled it. And whichever <laughs> number it landed on, we then watched that movie. <laughs> Oh, and it was actually the perfect programming. And if you rolled the same number twice, you'd be punished by having to watch like the Michael Jackson Halloween special, the Rupert Bumpkins Halloween special. <laughs> and eventually by the end, we're like, no more punishment. We just got to get through these movies. <laughs> uh, so you made a great point this week to me that what's great about the Hellraiser movies, especially the first two, is they seem made by people who actually wanted to make horror movies. Yeah, because a lot of the stuff that has been, you know, classified as the classics your wes cravens mm -hmm. your john carpenters your toby hoopers those were filmmakers they may have had an affinity for horror but horror wasn't the only thing that they wanted to do and a lot of those early pictures texas chainsaw massacre even last house on the left they are movies that were made because it was an exploitable genre that they knew was going to make money and then they got pigeonholed into that genre and all people wanted from them was horror films clive barker came into hellraiser wanting to make a horror film wanting to make the best horror film that he could and i think this gets to the root of why roger ebert was so hostile to these movies and why maybe other critics were hostile to them because there's nothing in them that suggests wanting to transcend the genre or elevate the genre or be somehow above the genre like these are movies about like blood and guts they, they, they relish in flesh getting torn off was roger ebert a fan of the texas chainsaw massacre no, I don't think he was. I think he gave it two stars. I was going to say that, like, what were the horror films that Roger Ebert, like, really loved? Oh, Nosferatu. I don't <laughs> okay, know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's pretty much it, because, I mean, he famously gave a very negative review to Night of the Living Dead as well. Yeah, which later he tried to walk back and say, oh, I was really just talking about the audience. <laughs> so, the Hellraiser, for people expecting that lovable guy Pinhead on the cover, no, nah, he only shows up in the last, like, ten minutes. What it's really about is the story of a man and his wife, Julia, moving to the UK. You know what? I say the UK, but the film actually tries to do its best to avoid it being the UK to the point that they dubbed a lot of the actors with American accents. And yet, I think it still has a strong UK vibe to it. Absolutely. It feels 100% yeah. like it's in the UK. Yeah, so... You've got this woman and her husband. Husband's a bit of a square. Mm -hmm. You can tell he's a bit of a loser. She is thinking about the affair that she had with his brother, who died. Uh, you know, she's she's longing, lusting after thinking about that affair. And at one point, when, she, when they're at the house, when they're doing construction, her husband hurts himself, cuts his hand. Horrible cut. Like the bloodiest cut you've ever seen on film. <laughs> uh, blood gets on the ground, and it is able to revive her dead lover. So gross, that sequence, too. Stop motion. And uh, we're going to say this a lot throughout this conversation. Very uh, Lucho Fulci-esque. Yes. But it doesn't revive him completely mm. uh, at first. Because first you see her dead lover, her dead brother-in-law. And he's has no skin. He's just like... He's a, tiny, too. Played by a little person. Yeah, just, just shriveled up and covered in blood and guts. And he's like, Julia, Julia, it's me, Frank. Don't look at me! Don't, don't look, look at don't me! Look at me. Uh, you, the human blood revived me, so can you get me some more? human blood doesn't matter who it is do you love me don't you don't you love me give me more blood because blood is what will revive me and so she keeps bringing strange men to the house you know you know like oh i want to come up to my place and then she uh, uh kills them and mm, feeds bloodily the blood. you know it's it's a little shop of horrors basically yeah a hundred percent and eventually he forms himself into looking like a walking and talking anatomy uh dummy where you can see all the organs and the skin and stuff like that oh so good i mean okay what is it about 80s horror 80s horror 
is so blood and guts fueled. It feels like, so the 70s were a reaction to kind of, oh, we're in the Vietnam War, you know, it's past the 60s, kind of like a cynicism to, and almost a fatalism to everything that's going on. Well, the 80s is all about excess. Like we have everything, Uh, right? Reagan is president. Reagan is president. Rambo firing a million bullets. So the movies should have all like the blood and guts. And the best ones also are very imaginative in that construction because you need to figure out the way to make it as gory as possible without it feeling repetitive. Okay, let's talk about the Cenobites because Hellraiser, Pinhead... Mm -hmm. Uh, is Hellraiser Pinhead? Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, so Pinhead was actually a nickname that he got on the set of the first one by the cast and crew, and eventually they just kind of accepted it because that's what right. What, called. They just called him like the Man in Black or something. Yeah, so, some I see. He's like, like the that. priest of the hell. Priest, that's yeah. what it was. Okay, but he's not the best of the Cenobites. No. Well, okay, first of all, what are the Cenobites? Explain this mythology to me. Uh, the Cenobites, basically they rule hell. And and you got a little box, and if you, if yeah, you do your uh, little, The lament configuration. That's right, and if you Rubik's Cubic the right way, mm-hmm. you'll release the Cenobites. And uh, you got you got three guys, basically. You got Pinhead, you got... Butterball. Butterball. Butterball's the only one I care about. Butterball rules. Butterball rules. He's got little tiny glasses. He just hangs out at the back. Great energy. Mm-hmm. And you also got Chatterer and the very, um, unfortunate Unfortunately named female Cenobite. <laughs> when everybody learns about that, we're like, that can't be her name. Nope, that's how she's credited in the first two movies. And so Pinhead shows up, and essentially it's the idea of, you know, SM almost as if it was like a Christian scare film, where it's like, this is how far it actually goes. So when I watched the first two movies, which are now blurring together in my head because I watched them in such proximity, mm-hmm. I thought the first one was better. But now, as I get a few days away from it, Hellraiser 2 is the one that like is the most vivid in my mind. Well, Hellraiser 2 two has an interesting structure in that not only does it follow directly after the first one so essentially ashley like hours after the first one ashley who is the daughter of the square that gets killed in the first one and julia is her stepmother she gets committed to an asylum because of everything that happened and she is screaming that she saw these cenobites and she saw all of these monsters i mean the first one is just packed to the gills with fun monsters there's an awesome monster that shows up down a hallway who's like you know rolling down and there's a guy on top of him with like big tentacles arms yeah, yeah, yeah. and you can see very clearly in every version of the film little wheels that are pushing him in the back she's put in a mental institution where oh there is an evil doctor that's taking care of her who is obsessed with this lament configuration box mm-hmm. and he brings julia back to life because these were movies that were very interesting in their construction because clive barker made hellraiser essentially from what I understand, as kind of an independent production at first, mm-hmm. because like Virgin, the big company, was supposed to fund it at first, they dropped out, then other investors came in, and eventually New World came into the picture, and they watched like a first cut of the film and said, we liked it, but we need you to kind of like pump it up. And they actually gave him a bunch of money to do so, including, for example, the first transformation in the film of Frank coming out of the floorboards. That was actually all shot after the film was done. Mm-hmm. And they kind of like just made it gorier and, you know, just more in your face and the one of the people that was really involved with that was a new world executive called tony randall and he is kind of like uncredited on the picture but clive barker says that he was very involved and he directed the second one which came in very quick succession the year the next year Mm -hmm. so this was like oh hellraiser is a huge hit we need to make another one now and that's how fast they got it into production which is amazing considering how elaborate hellraiser 2 is i mean essentially it takes place in this other world realm hell dimension 
mansion. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like this kind of Escher painting, mm-hmm. you know, staircases leading to uh, other Nowhere. staircases yes. and, you know, stuff upside down. Uh, uh, Mr. Roger Ebert uncharitably described it as like a CD ROM game, like, <laughs> you know, uh, a CD ROM game, folks. You know, I think he was probably talking about like FMV games that you could play, like yeah. Phantasmagoria and stuff like that. Yeah. And he also said that you could play every scene out of order, which, uh, sure, that doesn't mean it's a bad movie. I well, guess. I mean, I, I, I just kind of let it wash over me. Mm-hmm. It's just like, honestly, if you can't appreciate this movie, you can't appreciate cinema. It's just one incredible scene, one incredible image after another. Well, it's just Jacques Cocteau's Orpheus. Like, that's what the, <laughs> yeah. the screenwriter said. That's one of his favorite yeah, movies, yeah, yeah. and he just copied yeah, yeah. the structure of it. It's like, what is the difference between Hellraiser 2 and, like, the kind of jury in that movie? They're I mean, basically the same. I mean, it's just like, it's an overwhelming, it's like an over like just a pummeling experience to just see like so so much brutality so so, <laughs> yeah. so much flesh being mangled but it's not <laughs> done in like a guinea pig style no where you'd it's, be it's very like, fun like yeah. there's a kind of there's an evil dad energy to it at mm-hmm. times like this it's joyous and i think what's really great about hellraiser one and two that you don't always see in other films of this ilk is that like clive barker and tony randall were making very clear choices about what was happening because like the visual effects were so well realized that it could only come from a place of the people kind of knowing what they want and putting it on screen. There's no like, ah, we'll fix it in post or we'll get to it later. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, this is the idea I have in my mind. This is what Pinhead looks like. He has weird like strips of flesh over his breasts that are just like hanging over, Mm -hmm. you know, his chest and like Chatterer, just a dude who just chatters his teeth. Like this is what it is. And I think that's why it works as well as it does. And it's also a concept that when you want to continue the films, it becomes difficult to do if you don't want to expand it or kind of explore, okay, what else is involved in this universe? Because, you know, two opens it up wide. Like, it's huge. Like, oh, we can go to hell. There's a Leviathan that's controlling it. This is how you make a Cenobite. And then you get to three where it's like, eh, I guess he's like Freddy. He says quips, right? <laughs> yeah, so Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth, uh, which is the first Miramax production. And, you know, it feels like it feels like a Miramax well, production. Well, so like Hellraiser 1, Miramax actually came in after the fact and oh. like gave the money and distributed it as well. Okay, because, I don't know, it has the feel of, okay, a, a mini-major American studio has picked it up mm-hmm. and it just feels a little more anonymous. It feels a little blander. Really? I love that Anthony Hickok style on it. <laughs> okay, okay. I am going to say that I did like this movie. Yeah. But what is the Anthony Hickok style? Uh, it's very, you know, I almost say it's like Sam Raimi at like uh, one third speed where uh-huh. he loves split diopters. He loves giant sound effects. He loves gore and splatter, but he doesn't really have the rhythm that Sam Raimi has to pull it off screen. So when there's long girls in his film, like you feel them where you're like, all right, when are we going to get to the good? stuff like come on and this movie makes a mistake of after the first two it's clear that the executives were told people love pinhead give us more pinhead exactly and what that translates to pinhead just won't shut the hell up and he just yip yap like just talking the entire movie which i have mixed feelings about because i do like pinhead and i, <laughs> yes. I do like spending time with him and i love hearing him do quips and <laughs> i mean talk. but i liked you know in the first couple movies they envisioned him more like christopher lee as dracula mm. this very menacing figure who is 
you know, dominates the movie without necessarily being seen that much. And when he is seen, he's very he's very menacing. But I do love it when he quips. I mean, in this one, he starts like trapped. He's essentially Audrey, too, in this film where he's like, feed me, (laughs) where they have to bring bodies to him. And they do the whole like, oh, he gets to, you know, come to life if you feed him blood. Right. So he's trapped in this pillar, the pillar of souls. Mm -hmm. And uh, they happen to build a nightclub around the pillar. (laughs) Which happens? No, it's the nightclub owner buys it from a mysterious Uh, gift shop. Yes, 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 that's right. And the nightclub owner, he's not a serious man, okay? Mm. Uh, He he is just going to believe whatever this pillar tells him. Mm -hmm. So he keeps feeding things to this pillar, including uh, his uh, the girl that he had sex with. The pillar just... Eats her up? Eats eats her skin. Yeah, that's right. And then swallows her right up with a sweet 1990s-style special effect. So, you know, the movie does have some indelible images in it. Uh, None more so than when Pinhead is on the dance floor. He's just like throwing (laughs) chains around and like impaling three people at once. I mean, that's pretty cool. Well, the thing that people really don't like about Hellraiser 3 is the Freddy Kruegerization of it. The fact that like Pinhead quips and that it's very in the moment that it was made. So like Pinhead, I guess they didn't have the money to hire Butterball again. Maybe he was busy. (laughs) Who knows? He was on other projects. Exactly. You know, he got too big for his britches. He was doing like the Butterball story. (laughs) So you got um, a bunch of new Cenobites just as good as the old ones you got Camera Head who says stuff like say cheese before he like blow stuff up you got CD Head uh-huh. I did like Camera Head actually <laughs> what's cooler than a guy that just shoots CDs out of his mouth right or you also have Bartender Man <laughs> who like he like shakes drinks throws them and then lights them on fire this, this is another reason why this movie isn't quite as good as the first two because there's something that feels very eternal mm. about the characters in the first two movies Absolutely. They feel like these ancient evils, whereas in this third one, they're, they're more topical evils. Yeah, yes. like cameraman, CD man, <laughs> yeah, you know? Exactly. They're at a nightclub, a, a cool 90s nightclub. Yeah, that it could not be anywhere else other than the 90s. When you look at the first one, it's like an old British home that they're in. There's that mm-hmm. wetness mm-hmm. feel of being in the UK. And you can feel that, like, Pinhead has been around forever. He, an eternal evil, if you will. While, you know, CD man, <laughs> I feel he gets scratched pretty fast and he's out of the game right away. <laughs> so after this, I know you didn't watch any of these other films, Will, but... And I, I plan to at some point. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't recommend it. Even though Hellraiser 4 starts in space and a robot does a lament configuration and then explodes. So I will say about Hellraiser Bloodline that this is one of those trailers that I saw a lot on the Viewer's Choice pay-per-view <laughs> network growing up. Yes. I know that Alan Smithy directed it. Yes, it was directed by someone who essentially lost control of the production midway, who got taken away from him, and the film is a mess. It's an anthology film, essentially, where it takes place in like multiple time periods. The past, where Adam Scott, yes, the comedian Adam Scott, plays kind of a, a libertine person <laughs> who finds a lament configuration than modern day where they're building a you know big trump like tower like structure that is a big lament configuration and finally you know where all part four movies need to go like leprechaun you go to space and it's pinhead in space where at the end in classic dumb pinhead style he gets fooled by a hologram and he's like no and he explodes <laughs> and from there like i kind of already mentioned the other films they have hellraiser 
you know, in the title, but they're essentially to keep the copyright of the films. No more so than Hellraiser Revelation, a film that starts for the first 20 minutes as a found footage picture, to which I say, no, thank you. Yeah. And then it turns into a bunch of generic people in a house. And worst of all, you don't have Doug Bradley back. You have what we like to call chunky pinhead. Pinhead was double chins. <laughs> Imposter pinhead, if you will. And it is so lame and so boring. Matthew Kumar said it best. It's like a porno where they cut all the porn scenes out and they just left the story beats. And that's what Hellraiser Revelations is. Well, pretty soon somebody will do a reboot. They already announced it. Oh, okay. Uh, and not only is there a reboot, there are dueling Hellraiser projects. Wait, how can that be? I believe somebody owns the rights to the original Clive Barker short story. Somebody uh, owns the movie rights. It's an octopusy, never say never again situation. It's, this is happening over... It happened with Chucky as well. There was a re reboot Chucky movie, and now this is an official Chucky TV series playing on sci-fi. Oh, so that's why the posters for the tv series say from the creator of the original child's play exactly it's like the real ghostbusters yes i don't know why these studios think that the world is hungry for two competing hellraiser projects did they not learn their lesson with their competing um truman capote projects or competing <laughs> alfred hitchcock the, orig projects? the original butterball truman capote <laughs> You know what? It's coming out. Uh, the guy who did The Night House, David Bruckner, is directing the movie version. And David Gordon Green, the man who just gave us Halloween Kills, he's headlining the TV series. Uh, yeah. You know what it's going to be? It's going to be the TV series, probably like an anthology style, like, I found the Lament configuration. Kind yeah. of like Freddy's Nightmares. I don't know if you ever watched that. I'm, I've never actually seen it. Well, basically, yeah. Freddy shows up at the end of every episode being like, hey, bitch, you screwed up. And then he kills him in a very cost-effective way. I see. I see. But you know what? I I'm all for Hellraiser coming back. Considering that all the movies after four, all Pinhead does is just chains come out every single time. That's all that happens. <laughs> like, sure, bring him back. Give deep mythology. That's what people like. And just bring back Butterball. That's who we want to see. The people love Butterball. He is the star of these motion pictures, whether they want to admit it or not. So next year, Leprechaun? No. How about next year, Phantasm? Oh, Have you yeah. watched the Phantasm series? I've seen the first one, but that's it. Oh, wow. I love the Phantasm series. And it's one of the rare films that the creator was involved with every picture. Wow. Now, he didn't direct the fifth one, but he was very kind of like creatively involved. And also what's cool about them is they get progressively cheaper as they go. <laughs> and it's just kind of like, I just like doing this is the only reason that those films continue to exist. So next year, Phantasm. After that, oh God, Leprechaun. Let's not plan too far. <laughs> yeah, yeah, who knows? We'll be uh, scrounging for water in the water war wars by then. Well, Justin, do we have any letters on this fine Shocktober evening? <laughs> we do have letters. As per usual, you can send us your letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And you know, folks, when we first came up with the name The Important Cinema Club, I think we envisioned the club as just of two people, like we were The Important Cinema Club. But what I realized is that you're all part of The Important Cinema Club, and this the, this letter section. Those are senior members of the Important Cinema Club. So think <laughs> so think about that. Like you you are all club members. Mm -hmm. You're all club members. It's not just you us. get let into the VIP room if you send a letter. It's what you're trying to say. Exactly. So send us letters. So the first letter goes hitting you up from the six. Hey guys, that would be Toronto, yeah. right? Yes. As uh, Drake coined the term, I think, or yeah. has it always existed that way? Can I tell you something really funny? Uh, my landlord, his company is called the Six Properties. 
Oh, boy. I know. <laughs> I thought you were going to give a Drake anecdote, like the story of our pal Peter Kaplowski and Eastern going to see a movie and Drake and his posse showed up at the front and they would not be quiet to the point that Eastern was like, hey, guys, can you quiet down, please? Ah, fuck those guys. And I was invited to that screening, too. I would have had that story not secondhand if I had gone, but... Yeah. What nope. was the movie? I don't... It was something bad. Okay. <laughs> That's why I avoided it. So the story continues. You know, this is the big story of the important cinema club, as you say. Hey, guys, I'm a big fan of the show. I really like that you obviously make an effort to dive into unusual or marginalized entry points into cinema like the Wayne's Brothers or Hollywood. There's a franchise we can do, the Haunted House franchise. Oh, I'd love to. Even when you cover a mainstream name, I notice you like to pick that are less commented on or even malign works like David Lynch's Dune or a Wes Craven movie where Eddie Murphy plays a vampire. That's a vampire in Brooklyn classic film, right? Everyone loves it. No topic suggestion for me, just a question. I recently moved to Toronto and after a year and a half of quarantine, I'm really roaring to dive back into the in-person cinema experience with the usual caveat about how you might have already addressed this in a previous episode. I want to ask if you two, being Toronto guys, have any recommendations for theaters or events that local movie fans should check out. Luckily, I've already crossed watching a piece of crassly self-congratulatory pablum at Tiff off my lips. <laughs> Keep up the good work, Juan. <laughs> oh, let's see. Well, I mean, it'll be interesting. Not everything's Ooh, open. What's open, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we used to enjoy a place called the Royal Cinema, which mm. is not dead. It's just gone to a farm up north where no, it frolic so- with the Royal Cinema kids. is owned by an eccentric, uh, rich person. Sure. I say eccentric as if it's bad. No, he just owns the property and he has no real reason to open it. It's not a big moneymaker for him. And he said, once COVID, you know, stuff goes back to normal, then the Royal will reopen. But he's keeping the property. He's not selling it to make condos or anything because okay. he likes owning a cinema. Okay. But some other- there you have it, folks. Rep cinemas have opened, like you have The Review. That's actually under new ownership. And they're doing a lot of the program that The Royal used to do. Yeah, The well. Review is great. Uh, the Fox. Oh, the love East the Fox. End is yeah. terrific. It's very far from me, so I don't get out there that often. But. I used to go all the time when they used to do like uh, Shock and Awe, which was an all-night horror movie marathon on 35 and 16 millimeter. I mean, I've talked endlessly about the 3D screenings I saw I there. can't believe I missed so many. That was an amazing marathon that they did. I'm just going to say it again. I had a double feature. Double feature that I saw there in 3D. Friday the 13th part 3D and Flesh for Frankenstein oh. in 3D. With, with on glasses film. On film. On yeah. film. And when I saw them back in 2009, I thought there's nothing unusual about this. I think that maybe um, some of the guys that own that may listen now and then so if you're listening we love the fox and also they have like a movie empire they own like a million theaters seemingly now like in ottawa are they the apollo theater in kitchener they are the kitchener that's what it is yes well guys if you're listening i like the apollo theater as does my father oh wait that's where you saw drunken master too uh, no, I saw that the princess. They're their competitor. <laughs> okay. I'll just tell oh, no, we won't talk about the princess. I'll, I'll just tell you. I'll just tell you that my father, I think, saw. Uh, uh, I think he saw Bergman Island at the Apollo, and, oh. he, and he enjoyed it very much. Awesome. I mean, those type of cedars, they do very well with the older people pictures, if you will. <laughs> Thank God they do. I mean, because that's who lives in the beaches, which is a very rich area of Toronto. But what else would we recommend in Toronto? I mean, there are just so many like ad hoc screenings that that happen. Like Cinecycle used to do stuff all the time not so much anymore for reasons yeah yeah um, uh, tiff lightbox will have some really cool programming as well it's not open right now i believe but yeah there, there are just so many things okay um i would recommend i don't know if they're doing it anymore but eyesore cinema has like a back room where oh they they're would, definitely doing it where, still. okay yeah. they often do like really weird screenings there drop by eyesore cinema sometime find out what they're doing my pal adam the ride thorn does a lot of stuff like terrible toonie tuesday screenings where it's just a toonie if you want 
want to come. He also has uh, his film festival that he does there. It's a great, like, intimate micro cinema space. That, yeah, it's just tons of fun at the back of a video store. So, like, the ultimate, uh, you know, cinema experience that you want to have. They did a month where all they played was Mark Hamill's, like, entire filmography. Yeah, they called it March Hamill. And I know that because I went to see Black Magic Woman there. <laughs> Which Amazing. Was, which was terrible. I believe I had a great time, though. A pal of mine, Keenan, did a lot of that stuff. He does a lot of like graphic designs. Well, and... I know because I have a, a collection of Mark Hamill trading cards that I got. Yeah, yeah. that's what you need to do because Keenan, he does trading cards. Did you see the ones that I recently got? They did a Frank Stallone trading card yeah. set. I saw somebody else had like Tracy Lords yes. and a couple and of other. They're like literally bubblegum cards where it comes with a stick of bubblegum and like 19 cards that's just like photos of like Frank Stallone movies and then information on who he plays in that movie on the back yeah so check out eyesore cinema i would also say go to red chart cineforum no do not go to red Chart. go Cine- to red chart cineforum once with a friend with a friend yes do not go by yourself but, is it still happening yes it is wow so so do it do it once you you deserve it you owe yourself the experience has there been some new flyers that i've got this is like real like toronto <laughs> stuff uh, that you've noticed recently gone yeah, out. yeah yeah i have seen oh, some. Yeah, i'll leave it at that just yesterday i saw some wow and there's a place that you've been that i've actually never been that does 35 millimeter screenings as well is that the kingsway cinema the kingsway cinema i, yes. I don't think the kingsway does a lot anymore mm. but sometimes they do I mean, they definitely do culty stuff, oftentimes on Friday nights. I have seen on 35mm at the Kingsway Cinema, Night of the Ghouls by Ed Wood. That's right. I've seen They Call Me Bruce on 35mm. I mean, He was doing it for a while because the very eccentric owner of that place was doing screenings of his own personal print collection. Yeah, and so he would show some stuff that was just like unbelievable like some of that like never would have thought you'd see that and as we said before you know in toronto you also have the uh, gta and me and will have been discovering indian cinema which plays a lot around here as well yeah that's right i mean in north etobicoke uh if you have a car or just go on the bus we've taken the subway and the bus there yeah Yeah, it takes a while i I don't know where you live sir Mm -hmm. but check out the albion cinema in etobicoke if it's still open because has it opened yet i'm not certain but we went to the york cinema Mm -hmm. in uh where is that richmond hill yes and yeah. that's like a multiplex that only plays Indian cinema. Check so. that out. It's so much fun. Oh, it's a blast. There was one more. Oh, me and Will, our stomping grounds, basically Young and Dundas, though. The Times Square of, of <laughs> Toronto. Very, uh, that's much smaller than Times Square. Only because all the international cinema opens there. Yeah, we see Chinese blockbusters. We mm. see Indian blockbusters. Yeah, whatever shows up there, that is our stomping ground. So I hope everybody who does live in Toronto has skipped that whole portion because <laughs> it doesn't really um, affect you. But maybe it makes you want to move to toronto don't you can't afford anything it's terrible if you move to toronto and you see me around uh don't talk to me (laughs) wait is it true to be like a secret thing don't say that will loves to be i i okay i love being recognized (laughs) are you will sloan of the important cinema club just yeah if you see me say hello Mm -hmm. and and uh tell me how much you love yeah tell uh, tell us that you're a big fan of like battle lugosi meets a brooklyn gorilla oh that's the secret handshake right there yeah so what are we doing on our patreon this week will we are talking about a true Shocktober topic. One of the great auteurs. We're talking about the cinema of Ray Kellogg. <laughs> Me and Will sat down and did a double bill of The Killer Shrews and The Giant Gila Monster. Both of which were, of course, mystery science theater classics. But we watched them without the peanut gallery. Oh, we didn't actually talk about one of the topics that I wanted to ask, which is, has anyone who was a Mystery Science Theater 3000 obsessive liked those movies independently of Mystery Science Theater 3000? Uh, well, you're talking to one. One of them. One but of I'm them. curious if there's other people. If you are one of those people, uh, let us know in the Discord. 
Yeah, we, we, Justin and I were trying to figure out, like, did that show really introduce a lot of people? Did it get people interested mm. in weird movies? Or was it just a one-stop shop? For yeah, people? like, I'll watch the weird movies that play Mystery Science Theater 3000. I like how bad, air quotes, and, like, funny they are. But it doesn't, like, create a fandom for those movies. It created a fandom for Mystery Science Theater 3000. I mean, I can only speak for myself. Mm. I I loved the show and I loved the worlds that it opened up for me. So let us know in the Discord. We have a podcast section, which you can check out by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com slash the important cinema club, $5 a month. You get the episode we just mentioned and you can join the Discord, which is very active with all sorts of stuff. So Will, what are we doing next week? Well, we have another Shocktober episode. Oh! <laughs> uh, gets me every time and uh we wanted to class up the joint a bit we mm. wanted to talk about a critic a critic that roger we... ebert again uh, we've already done him will no thanks no a critic that we've justin and i have wanted to talk about for a long time we've been trying to figure out some some time some reason when it would feel right the critic's name is robin wood great toronto-based marxist academic mm-hmm. who has written such books as hollywood from vietnam to reagan an essential book yes it's- like anyone who knows robin wood knows he's one of the greatest and robin wood was an expert on many things ingmar bergman howard hawks he wrote tons of books on them claude chabrol if you go to the library and they have like classic books on the subjects you will find robin wood like slim books and probably the most famous one that he wrote was on alfred hitchcock yes that's right but what a lot of people also love him for is his writing on horror films i can think of very few serious critics critics of his level who wrote more and better about horror films he was a great fan of george a romero john carpenter uh, a great fan a huge huge fan of larry cohen i mean he liked to say that like day of the dead was one of his favorite movies of all time yeah so we're going to be talking about him we haven't quite figured out exactly how we're going to do the episode are we going to talk about we can talk about like certain filmmakers through the lens of them and kind of how he discussed them and what he brought to the discussion as well i mean i don't expect uh, anyone listening or even will to like read like 10 of his books or anything but there is one book that's very good robin wood on the horror film mm. which was just assembled maybe two years ago i don't know if you've seen it justin i haven't but you know what i will read it for this episode my claim it's it's good you'll like it all right so that's what we're gonna do next week so until then my name's justin the clue i'm will sloan thanks for listening Ho, 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 it's me, Santa Claus, interrupting the Important Cinema Club to thank some of the new patrons, who include Steve Nutt, Preston McFarlane, Stephen Kielbeck, Chico Felix, Tamsin Cleary, Ethan L., John Daniel, Kurt Freeman, Tim Hadlow, Daniel Halquist, Einar Anderson, Jorge Rodriguez, Jake Hayden, and Sten Walker. Thank you very much for becoming a patron from me, Santa Claus, because it is November 2nd by the time I'm recording this, which means it's nothing but the holidays from now on. Ho, ho, ho. And if you're feeling in a gift-giving mood, please, please give a review to The Important Cinema Club, my favorite podcast of me, Santa Claus. Also, I represent all holidays, so I'm really not one specific thing. I would very much appreciate it if you gave a review on Apple Podcast or whatever podcast app that you use for the Important Cinema Club. <laughs> and we now return you to your regular scheduled programming. Speaking of books, there's a big release that just recently came out, 
And it is Leonard Maltin's Starstruck. Leonard Maltin's long-awaited autobiography. And when this book was announced, you know, I was on the Amazon page, and it had a bunch of pictures of, like, Leonard with, I don't know, Will Smith or, Mm. you know, whatever. It's just like him kind of, like, standing on an Entertainment Tonight-style backdrop. That's what the cover of the book is. And I looked at it, and I thought, this might not be. So this is a journey, though. I feel we've taken through this podcast, right? A long time ago, we did a Patreon episode on Leonard Maltin's Movie Guide, and I felt we were fairly dismissive about him as a critic. The words like, uh, who's a big Leonard Maltin fan may have left our lips, which we were very incorrect. Well, yeah, Leonard Maltin had the movie guide, Mm -hmm. that big 20,000 page thing with the capsule reviews. His face on the cover. In those days before the internet, everybody had that book. Mm -hmm. That was the internet movie database of its day. It became symbolic for us of like mainstream opinion and and like square mainstream Mm -hmm. opinion. So, you know, he was maybe a bit of a punchline for us for a little while. Until, when did the the winds change? I'm trying to think of like was there one thing that we I don't like- think I don't think there was one thing I mean I always was aware of I knew that he was a fan of old movies. Mm. I knew that you would see him in documentaries and stuff. Yeah, but when you say that, that feels like, who am I thinking of? Like Richard, uh, what's his last name? Like Krauss? Sh- no, no, Schnickel or something oh, like that? Oh, Richard Schickel, yeah. Richard yeah, yeah, Schickel. Yeah. It's like, no one's a real fan of Richard Schickel, right? Yeah, you would see him in these documentaries and it would be like, oh yeah, of course, he knows old movies because he's a critic. Mm-hmm. But then... I don't know. We just heard him on enough podcasts. Yeah, I think it was podcasts that we heard him talking with, he, like maybe a Joe Dante or he, something like yeah, that. Yeah, he was on Joe Dante's podcast and he had his own podcast. Mm. Still has. Yes. And when you get him talking to like Drew Friedman mm-hmm. or Joe Dante and they're just talking about old movies, like you realize, oh, this guy's a freak. Yeah. So when I looked at his bibliography, I was like, wait a minute. Like once you push past the you know movie encyclopedias and stuff like that and you're like great movie duos which you think will be like all right Abra and Costello and blah blah and they are but then when you read them like write about the Ritz brothers or, or even Wheeler and Woosley or Brown and Carney yeah you're like oh he's one of us he's got an incredible book about great short subjects mm. I think that also when I learned that like he had a zine into him being on energy tonight decades into being entertainment tonight that he was still writing he was like 15 years old mm-hmm. and he was doing the zine with the circulation of a couple hundred people and he would interview like he was a teenager and he was going to interview not famous people no but people like he was interviewing like billy gilbert <laughs> yes. okay yeah like he, this man this man was pen pals with mo howard okay? oh yeah he loved mo howard all of these people and so once you figure that out, you're like, oh, he had a, you know, front facing entertainment tonight. That's what paid the bills. Yeah. But his real passion was writing like these very, you know, niche books. There's a book of interviews you can get that he wrote. You look at those names. I don't recognize nine out of 10 of those names. I know. It's incredible. <laughs> Mo- movie crazy, that book and hooked on Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Incredible books. And he said, like, this is what my passions are. The other stuff pays the bills. <laughs> yeah. And so Starstruck, when it was announced, I was like, uh oh. Will it be like, this is the time I met Will Smith and we talked about this. There's a little bit of that in the, in this. But it's also, if you're just like a general Entertainment Tonight fan and you're like, oh, I want to read about Leonard Maltin. You will be lost instantly. So many anecdotes about absolutely forgotten people. He talks about, like he brings up Wheeler and Woolsey at one point. Yes. He says, and then, and then to write the book, 
I watched every single Wheeler and Woolsey movie. And it's like, oh my God, uh, a freak. I, I was looking in the index. It's like, is there anything about Jerry Lewis in here? There's a whole chapter about Jerry Lewis. <laughs> of course there's a whole chapter about, does he mention Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla? Of course he does. Cause he also programmed it on 35 millimeter at the film festival that he did. The, I mean, this is what's great about Leonard Malton. He had Malton fest. Mm. Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. Ending film. <laughs> closing night film. Yeah. On 35, on the Lugosi family's personal print. Yes. And I mean, this, I mean, Malton Rocks, obviously. I mean, I sent Will like a paragraph <laughs> of like, he just talks about befriending the widow of the director of the Spanish version of Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is the good stuff that we want. And this is the stuff that like, he's clearly passionate about because he dedicates chapters to like, you know, meeting an old timey director who directed like B Westerns. Oh my God. There's a whole chapter about his friendship with Gloria Swanson mm-hmm. that is just so beautiful so moving and it's like not there's not even any there aren't even any like incredible pieces of gossip in it no shocking stories it's just nice times with Gloria Swanson yeah basically every chapter is like I had a nice time and I hope they had a nice time too and it feels genuine as well yeah the Gloria Swanson chapter he talks about 20th Century Fox the archivist struck up a new print of this completely forgotten musical that she was in and I said to her do you want to go see this print she said that's the worst picture I was ever in sure I'll go see it (laughs) so we go see it and we're watching this movie and it's a musical and she can't sing and she can't dance she's having a great time watching this movie and she's telling me all sorts of stories about the production now if that sounds like a fun story to you (laughs) you need to get this book it sounds great to me I love it I love every page of this book I'm not quite finished it yet I don't want to finish it no yeah I already finished I was sad I sent a message will be like i'm reaching the end of this book well it's making me a little bit bummed yeah (laughs) but you know what he has tons of books that i haven't read like i haven't cracked all of movie crazy yet because you know i gotta get to the leonard malton level i guess before i jump in and i'm sure there's wild stories that we've never heard before either so apologies for any disrespect i ever showed the man Mm -hmm. you know he's the king he's the king you know we were talking about it's like whose opinions of old-timey movies do you think we like more roger ebert or leonard malton 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 no contest i mean after after about 1960 ebert might get more reliable yes but but, you know when it comes to like cinephilia and the kind of love that we have uh for this kind of stuff malton 100 percent and that's because roger ebert uh, nothing against him he obviously knew movies pretty well mm-hmm. but he was given the job of film critic he yes. he was not he did not love movies particularly above any other art form before. malton it was in his blood though he couldn't do anything else malton was 12 years old writing zines yeah like that's Send, sending letters to the three stooges <laughs> malton has a story in the book about how he heard buster keaton was filming a movie in new york yeah the samuel beckett um short that he made right that's right uh he's 12 years old he's like running to the set like desperately trying to meet <laughs> buster keaton i was kind of amazed at how often deep into his tenure as the et host he'd be like can you sign this photo please <laughs> like you know a character actor who probably hadn't signed a photo in like 20 years okay i could talk about this book forever but one more thing <laughs> there's a whole chapter about the golden boot awards oh yes i love that chapter i want to so live inside that chapter <laughs> it's because this is in the 80s when a lot of the old western stars are still alive none of these old western stars ever got an award for anything nothing and lower like stunt people or mm. you know just people that worked on westerns and only westerns so essentially a bunch of people got together and decided let's create an award ceremony for these old guys 
the Golden Boot Awards, and they held it, you know, every year for a couple of years. The whole Western community was out from, you know, Jimmy Stewart all the way down to the lowliest stuntman. Well, like, yeah, like Clint Eastwood would show up and they'd meet all these stunt people they haven't seen in decades. Oh, man, like Herb Jeffries mm-hmm. got a Lifetime Achievement Award. I mean, I if I could go back in time, <laughs> I w- I'd like to take the little Midnight in Paris car back back to the, <laughs> to Golden, to the Boot Golden Boot Awards. Boot Awards. <laughs> I mean, Leonard Malton did it. It's right there in the book. <laughs>